Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Joe Dobbs in the Nicholson Library in Linfield. It's April 11th, 2017, and Joe will start you off with an easy question, which is why wine? Why wine? Uh, Because it wasn't medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I got into business in uh, 1985 after growing up on uh, what I call a gentleman's farm. My dad was a physician. Uh, We had 60 acres. We had horses, cows. We raised largemouth bass, um, Christmas trees, etc. Oh, my gosh. And um, there was a two-acre parcel out in front of the house. My dad said, hey, you want to do something with that? So long story short, I planted Marion berries. Uh, I think it was about 13 years old, (laughs) and maybe 14, and started raising Marion berries and sold them to Smuckers. And so that was my agricultural beginnings. Um, My dad used to import grapes from California and make wine at home. Um, So we stomped the grapes in the 50-gallon trash cans and uh, he made some wine and so it was just kind of a confluence of a lot of things that really got me into it. Um, so um, I think the thing that really pushed me into it then was in 82. Um, I was getting ready to uh, take uh, the MCAT test for medical school uh, acceptance and um, I was tired of school. I wanted to travel to Europe. I wanted to ride my bike around Europe and I remember seeing a news clip on TV uh, regarding Elko Vineyards. Mm. and coincidentally enough was my first uh, employer in the <laughs> state of Oregon and uh, so prior to that I had seen the news clip about El Cove and they had some great international success uh, in the industry and I said to my dad I said you know it's during Christmas break my last year and I was like I think I want to get in the wine business not try to pursue medicine don't know if I would have gotten into medical school but nonetheless so I took the the fast track to uh, <laughs> get into the wine business instead of becoming a physician first as a lot of folks have done actually Pat and Joe Campbell Joe Campbell's still a physician right, I'm sure you right. probably interviewed yeah. Joe mm-hmm. wonderful people uh, mm-hmm. some what I call the uh, the pioneers you know mm-hmm. not everyone calls them the pioneers but the the first coming of the modern Oregon winemaking era uh, in the early 70s sure. so the Eras and the Iries and the Letts and mm-hmm. Bill Fuller's etc and uh, they came to Oregon looking for the Holy Grail of Pinot Noir. So uh, they hired me in uh, 1986 after about an 18-month stint in Germany doing an apprenticeship in uh, Long and Lonesheim, Germany, a winery called Erbhof Tesch. So that was a number of years ago. What was the family, your family's reaction when you decided to do wine instead of medicine? You know, um, my dad never pushed me into medicine. You just do what you want to do and um, he was very happy with the idea. Coincidentally enough in 84-85 we planted my parents uh, first vineyards Markham Hill Vineyards and so I guess it was just kind of um, let's say it was just happenstance. Mm -hmm. It was was fate that everything (laughs) kind of headed that way so his first vintage at Markham Hill Vineyards was in uh, 1988 and then uh, 88, I was in Burgundy, France, after doing a two-year stint with Elko Vineyards. So um, the very first international Pinot Noir celebration held right here at, right. at uh, Linfield. Uh, Christophe Rumier from um, Domaine Rumier in Chambon-Musigny and I became close friends. And he says, hey, come on over and uh, do a harvest with me. And I'm like, wow, really? You know, <laughs> this is the Renoir of uh, red wine making sure. in Burgundy, right? And Picasso, call it whatever you want, my analogy, but said, I, my gosh, I can't pass this up. So I um, deferred my student loans. I sold my car to a friend, and I was off. <laughs> so <laughs> the I did the wine Yeah, That's yeah. Awesome. So degree in biology and uh, school of hard knocks and winemaking. So never went to, um, you know, a school, UC Davis or Fresno or elsewhere right. for winemaking. I just did apprenticeships. So. so once you had decided that you wanted to do wine, how did you then 
get yourself? How was you? How did you get your first entree into the industry? How did you get into Alcove or or into into the into yeah. Germany? Yeah. So Germany, it, it was a very uh, fortunate circumstance. It's just kind of way the life happens, I guess. 1984 was the first International Cool Climate Symposium that was held in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad met a uh, professor from the University of Darmstadt who was a yeast geneticist there doing, um, yeah, yeast geneticist, uh, research for the wine industry. And um, this was at a Hinman Vineyards, um, uh, yeah. whom I also worked for down the road. But of Daddy course, um, dad met him standing in line to get some food. <laughs> and said, hey, I've got a son that wants to get into the wine business and he wants to travel internationally and specifically to Germany to get a, uh, a uh, education. And uh, he set me up. So long story short, I don't know, eight, nine months later, I got my green card and I took off uh, summer of 1985 for Germany. Didn't know a single person there. All I was told is uh, the professor, oh, it's been a while, I don't remember his last name right now, but um, was going to be wearing a baseball or a, uh, a cowboy hat at the airport. So in Germany, you don't see so many cowboy hats. So I got off the plane and there he was. He took me to the winery and I met the, uh, the winemaker uh, who had studied in Geisenheim there and in, in, uh, the institute in Germany. And the rest is- That's amazing. Takes us me to here today. <laughs> so what was it like? Uh, you had a background in biology at that point. So what was it like- I did, Kind yeah. of getting into the, in, into the wine from the, from the start? Yeah. Um, I don't know, I, I, I kind of had what I say is a sixth sense for wine. I mean, there's a lot of it that really was intuitive for me. Um, I mean, I've been making wine 31 years now and I'm still learning, I'm pushing the envelope, but there are a lot of things that I just kind of understood. I don't know how and why that was. Um, just maybe because of the biology background, um, you know, macro science. Um, so, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. How was it that I... How did you learn? Yeah, yeah, just went, went to work with uh, the folks there in Germany and started asking a lot of questions. And um, it was a great beginning. The reason I went to Germany is because my family had roots from mm. Germany. Um, and it, in, back in the early 80s, Pinot Noir was like, yeah, what, it wasn't the big thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it was more so Riesling and other whites. And I mean, we had a lot of Cabernet planted and all kinds of other varietals. So. Sure. The Holy Grail was Pinot Noir, but Riesling was highly planted and, and all. And uh, so I, I went to Germany because of the background roots and um, just started asking a lot of questions. So uh, I pruned in the vineyards, um, I helped spray. Um, I was the, uh, the tractor essentially in a very <laughs> steep vineyard because the tractor couldn't go up and down the rows. So I went up and down the rows and hand sprayed, um, you know, for the mildew and uh, sure. botrytis and all that stuff and uh, worked in the cellar, helped bottle, filter, clean tanks, you name it, I did it. Um, everything but helped sell the wine in right. Germany. So uh, it, was, it was a great experience, a great macro experience in learning how to make, how the Germans made wine. So I think, you know, Germans for me, I've often said, Rich, are, are more um, uh, technical um, than the French, you know, mm -hmm. so fast forwarding in 88, 89, I was in Burgundy. Um, but the Germans more kind of did wine, in my opinion, and offend a nation, but um, and the French kind of lived it, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So um, the Germans were very technical. The Geisenheim Institute, where the winemaker went to school there, was very technical. And so it's with a lot of things that we did to the wine that we would never dream of um, doing here in Oregon or in other wine producing regions. Um, it was, it was uh, it's good wine, but it was uh, pasteurized, it mm -hmm. was centrifuged, it was serial filtered and belts on a suspender and just in case kind of thing. It was wow. more of a product in my opinion, at least to the winery I worked at. But I mean, I came back and I, it was my first experience in the wine business. So I thought, okay, well that's how you do it. Um, so then summer of 86, um, I was headed back and I wrote letters to a um, number of wineries and Pat and Joe Campbell said, hey, yeah, come on out. And I got the job on the spot. And so I worked the 86, 87 vintage with them and they made Riesling there mm -hmm. and Pinot Noir. The Pinot Noir that we made in Burgundy, you know, Spätburgunder was rosé. So and, you know, they put steam into the press where the grapes were to extract color. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's nothing like what, you know, we do here. Um, and uh, completely saw different means of and methodologies in, in making uh, wine, including Riesling. But you know, Pinot Noir, we were hand bucketing Pinot Noir from the one and a half ton fermenters into the press, and that's not the way that was done in Germany, right? <laughs> sure, it's all machines sure. and 
you know, a lot of mechanical harvesting and things like that that not yet had happened in Oregon. So um, I had to, I really had my eyes opened. Um, so 86, 87 vintages, and then, you know, going back, I, Christophe Rumier invited me over to do Burgundy with him, and I um, mean, he's a luminary, and um, his brother-in-law, Dominique Lafon, at the time, um, is, you know, the Picasso of white wine making in, in Burgundy, highly sought after, very active in Oregon right now, and internationally acclaimed, and they were brother-in-laws, and <laughs> I got to hang out with them, and um, I went to uh, amazing events um, there, the, uh, the Trois Glorias, the, uh, the, um, the hospice to bone tastings mm, and auctions. And um, I remember Dominique one time saying, Joe, the, so the farmers, the growers, the vignerons would bring, you know, like six packs of wine to this event. And there's hundreds of people there and singing and dancing. And this is in November during the Hospice to Bone auction, the fundraiser. And he says, pay attention here because the richest man in the world cannot purchase or acquire the wines that you're going to taste tonight because they're not available. Wow. So you had these vignerons. I mean, I was just, I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. You had these vignerons bringing wines that didn't even have labels on some of them, you know, um, old, dusty, moldy looking mm -hmm. bottles and tasting, you know, old uh, Montrachets and Marachet and Grand Cru's and it was a pretty amazing experience. So um, I say that I didn't, I wasn't there to make money, I was there to learn and made very little money, so I spent my money on, you know, to toothpaste and <laughs> <laughs> maybe getting my hair cut now and right, then right. And, uh, and dining out. So, you know, we ate out uh, at least once a month at wonderful Michelin restaurants with his cadre, um, Christophe and Dominique and um, Veronique Truon and Fevele and um, Jacques Seyss from Domaine du Jacques and many others, Pousdor, et cetera, et cetera. We tasted with them often. We, they had technical tastings, so we tasted in their cellar. They had technical tastings they got together for, and then these, these dinners, generally once a month, you know, except during harvest, and sure. had these great dinners and tasted wines, and I was a complete sponge just asking questions. They were very um, uh, patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I often say that when I went to Burgundy, I kind of unlearned what I had already learned about Pinot Noir um, in Oregon, and then came back, and eventually, then fast forwarding to when uh, I had my first head winemaking job in 1989. Then I kind of had to essentially learn all over again what you do in Burgundy. The vineyards are different. The conditions are different. The, you know, figure out with the tools I had and the imprint that basically I came back with, and the ideas of making Pinot Noir. Then I had to apply it myself, and. I've often joked, I laughed about that as, as an assistant winemaker, oftentimes you ask questions, maybe not always um, vocally, but of those that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. I could do it better, et cetera. <laughs> so there I was on my own. Um, well, first year I didn't, um, I worked with Ken Wright, but eventually then doing my own winemaking and learning what was gonna work best, so. Sure. Um, finally, finally, you have to make all the decisions. The weight was on my back. All of a sudden, it was a little different. Yeah, sure. and I didn't own the product, so it was pretty stressful. So you you had a, a pretty, that's a pretty amazing like apprenticeship slash like learning. It's amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, and I just brushed over. I mean, you know, right? I, sure. Brushed over it lightly, but yeah. How did you take all of? So you had you had a you had background in German, you had background in France, you had background in Oregon, and, and when you became head winemaker, when you started doing that, uh, how did you find your style? Yeah. Well, I'd have to say that, um, so the German experience, the French experience, two years at Alcove, and then I started in 89, so I came back summer of 89, and I, uh, from Burgundy, and I wrote letters and number of letters. Um, oops, hit the microphone. Eola Hills Wine Cellars reached out to me, Tom Huggins, mm -hmm. and uh, said, hey, we're looking for a winemaker, and interviewed, got the job. Um, the idea then was to share the vintage in 89 with Ken Wright, who was their consulting winemaker and had Panther Creek at the time and mm -hmm. a lot going on. So we shared the vintage. Um, so I, it was really nice, it was kind of a crutch, right? I didn't have to just jump in and, all right, I'm in charge of everything. So it was, Ken had kind of chosen the styles and the, the yeast and the regimes and how we're gonna do this and that. And so I went to school on Ken. <laughs> and um, he was kind of a yeast freak, so I'm a bit of a yeast freak. <laughs> Consequently, you know that uh, different yeast strains um, can impart different nuances uh, into the wines and help steer your 
eventual style. So worked together with him, finished up the 89 vintage. And so the 1990 vintage then was really where I said, all right, I got to figure out my style. What am I doing? Where am I going with this? So just pulled out of the recesses, mm -hmm. everything I had absorbed as a sponge over the years and looked at my notes and went for it. So um, how did it go? It went well. Yeah, the 1990 wines were well received. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, um, I don't even know if we made Pinot Gris at the time there. Chardonnay, mm -hmm. working for Yellow Hills Wine Cellars, Cabernet, et cetera, um, went well. So I did uh, two vintages with them, 1990 and 91, and uh, ended up marrying the, uh, the uh, general manager's sister. And um, life got a little complicated. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to edit that out. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's life, right? right? I mean, so all of a sudden I was working for my in-laws and it was, it was tough. It was a tough situation. It was tough on the marriage and all that. Sure. And I said, all right, look, it's either the marriage or the job. So I'm going to choose the marriage. And uh, 1990 then, um, a good buddy of mine, Rick Maffett, um, who um, still, um, he owns a winery and um, also uh, still works for Scott Lab, sells yeast products, uh, fermentation supplies, et cetera. Said, hey, uh, Hinman Vineyards has been purchased by Carolyn Chambers, a uh, business magnet, uh, well, statewide, mm -hmm. one of the uh, pioneers nationally in cable television and owns some uh, construction companies, mm -hmm. powerful woman, smart woman, um, looking for a new winemaker. So I went down to Eugene and got the job there and uh, left working with my in-laws and it was it was pretty tough that was tough on the marriage um it was tough on family relations etc sure. and went down to hinman and uh started there um well summer of 1990 uh, one, 91 and uh, worked then for the chambers family for uh through the uh, 95 vintage and uh had some instant success there it was fun um, the winery was not doing well, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the, the quality was um, not good, hence they wanted a new winemaker. And uh, first year, you know, the state fair back then, I mean, for a young winemaker, for a young industry was a really big thing, mm -hmm. I think much bigger than it is right now. And so we entered um, three wines, we came home with three gold medals, and best wow. of show, boom, done. And wow. <laughs> you got to be kidding me, really? <laughs> I mean, I... Setting a pretty high bar. I, yeah, so we went from wherever they were to this recognition, and mm -hmm. you can say whatever you want about competitions, et cetera, but mm -hmm. I mean, it's, sure. it was a great recognition for me um, as a winemaker and for the winery, and whew, things just kind of took off at that point, so um, yeah. <laughs> so what point then do you decide to strike out on your own and, and start, start up Dobbs Family Estate? Um, so after working for uh, Hinman Vineyards, well, let me uh, give you a little history how I ended up, because there's a sequence here. <clears throat> Started working for Hinman Vineyards and um, then, uh, you know, through the 95 vintage. During the 95 vintage, I remember it was a Sunday morning towards the end of October, Kevin Chambers, who was the general manager for Willamette Valley Vineyards, gave me a call. And I thought, this is strange. Sunday morning, Kevin's calling me at Hinman Vineyards. What's up? Right? It wasn't good news. It was Dean Cox, who was their winemaker, um, had died of a massive heart attack. Um, four children, I believe, at the mm. time, young guy. And they wanted me to come consult for them. And so I kind of got permission from Hinman Vineyards to go consult and help them out. And long story short, over a number of months, I, they had offered me the job and I, I wasn't interested. And then I finally said, all right, look, if you're really interested, let's sit down and let's carve this up and say, this is what I think the company needs to do. This is what they need to commit to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a, a public company, a lar lot larger winery. And so I was careful about where I was going and they agreed to everything. I got the job. And um, so I started there in um, 96 vintage and worked then for Willamette Valley Vineyards through uh, 2001 as a full um, W2 employee. Mm -hmm. So I then started doing some consulting in 2000. Um, so, but I look at Willamette Valley Vineyards, I mean, every, every company that I worked for was really left a mark on my training and what the mm -hmm. next step was and who and what I, I am today and what I'm doing. And it's all great experience, made it, you know, made some of my mistakes. Um, but while I'm at Valley Vineyards, it was really a paradigm shift because prior to that, I never really let anybody hydrate yeast or 
add acid or this or that. I'm the one that did all that. Everyone helped, but um, at that point, then it was Willamette's kind of like a uh, um, graduate school for mm-hmm. me, if you will. So it was a public company. I'd make reports to the board, learned a lot about business, um, became a better manager. So it then forced me to delegate, to build teams, mm-hmm. to put structures in place, center operating procedures. And that was really, that left an indelible mark on um, my future and what I'm doing today and how the company's being run today. And um, so uh, we went through the 2001 vintage. It was a big vintage, a lot of fruit, more fruit than we could handle. Um, and to me, it was just not a fun situation. It's going through some life changes. Um, the, 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 uh, the marriage lasted through 2000. And at that point, it was time to go a different direction. And I put my head down, took the new job um, at Willamette, um, and, uh, or the consulting, I mean, and mm-hmm. put my head down and just kept making changes. So it was, um, I don't know, ignorance. <laughs> it was um, young, bold, brash. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm gonna make my mark. Um, people would always ask, you know, uh, winemakers always get asked if you work a hired gun for someone else. Are you ever going to start your own company? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And why not? Well, it's a whole hell of a lot of work. It takes a lot of capital, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, then just some kind of light went off. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to start my own company. And uh, that was really kind of the genesis of all of it. Um, a lot of ignorance, a lot of hard work, um, great work ethic because of my upbringing and my father had an indelible mark on me. And I surround myself with some good people. and. Uh, today, Wine by Joe and Dobbs and Jovino are mm-hmm. three brands. is one of the largest producers of Oregon wine. Um, so, yeah, just fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so, Willamette Valley Vineyards, when I was there in 96, ver- merged with uh, Twelton Estate Winery. Mm-hmm. So, Bill Fuller, one of the pioneers in Oregon, mm-hmm. Um, so they bought Twalton Estate, acquired the vineyards, there was a winery there. Um, I ended up making the suggestion to the board of directors to shut down the winery because I thought it was duplicitous expenses. Um, I had to go up there and oversee it. Mm-hmm. Um, we had inherited the winemaker, um, Bill Mustman, great guy. Um, but I just said, hey, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. Let's just bring all the grapes down to Willamette because we have to put a lot of work into that old facility. Mm-hmm and do it here. So we ended up doing that. We mothballed uh, the, uh, the winery and the building and continued to manage the vineyards, which Willamette still does today, great mm-hmm. vineyard. And um, then when I left Willamette Valley Vineyards, I said, hey, went to Jim Bruneau, the founder and CEO of the company, still good friend, and said, hey, I'd like to rent this Twalton estate from you. Well, sure, you know, there's... It's an asset sitting there not creating any income, and so I rented it for what was essentially a song for Mm -hmm. a fair amount of equipment and put a lot of electrical improvements in the place. Um, Then went to uh, um, uh, Silicon Bank and got an equipment loan for about $250,000. I used about $225,000 of it. Hung out my shingle and, and said, okay, I'm in the custom winemaking business. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, just that easy. Yeah, yeah just <laughs> boom. And um, so let's see, that was the um, 2003 vintage that I inherited Tualatin Estate. But in 2002, I jumped over that Tory Moore. I'd done some consulting for Tory Moore and some other projects. So Kendall Jackson's first foray into the business, I skipped over that. Um, in Oregon was with Pinot Gris. So mm-hmm. I was rounding up Pinot Gris, having it cups some juice, and then it was sent down to them. I mm. uh, made that in the Twalton facilities. Prior to that, I arranged juice shipments that were um, pressed at other wineries, like Flynn Winery at the time, and sent down uh, to Kendall Jackson. Um, did some consulting for some other wineries, including Tory Moore. And then in 03, um, I made my wines at uh, Tory Moore. So, uh, 02 that was, sorry. I kind of skipped over that part, but anyway. It's like a greatest hits tour of the well-known we, <laughs> I, uh, Yeah, I haven't told this story in a while. So yeah, so from <laughs> Willamette then, I was consulting um, in 2000, last vintage 01, mm-hmm. and so Tory Moore and some others. So I was finding these custom wine making facilities elsewhere, and eventually then in 03, then I got my facility uh, in Forest Grove. Mm-hmm. So. 
Um, then um, Don Olson from Tory Moore said, hey, Joe, there's this facility in Dundee. Um, and I knew of it. Uh, it was actually one across the street, the smaller of the two, and said, I'm thinking about leasing it. Do you want to um, share the facilities? And I said, not really. <laughs> I said, why don't I rent it and I'll make wine for you as a custom winemaking client because I already had consulted for him. He said, yeah, sure. So we, we set up a deal and um, kind of takes us to current day um, company. So um, let's see, in 03, we're in Tualatin. Um, 04 in Tualatin, at Tualatin Estate and Forest Grove. 05 then leased the facilities um, in Dundee. Mm -hmm. 16,500 square foot facility that we're still in now, what we call the luxury facility. Um, it hired Gretchen Bach as my first employee to work with me um, in summer of 03. Uh, quickly put the Tualatin Estate Vineyard um, um, property together. She was my assistant at Willamette Valley Vineyard. She's now my COO. She's amazing. There's nothing that woman can't do. She's <laughs> one of the quickest learners I know and hardest workers. Very loyal, good person. And um, so anyway, she moved with me from Tualatin Estate and uh, to Dundee and um, 05, 06 vintages. We were in the smaller facility. Uh, 2008 then we leased a larger facility and moved all our winemaking operations um, from Forest Grove down to Dundee because initially we, we kept the whites up there. Mm -hmm. I had hired Ann Hubach to do that and she owns Helioterra wines. Helioterra in Portland doing a great job and uh, good marketer. It's Kroner company. It's pretty cool to see. Um, and here we are. So now we have 52,000 square feet. Uh, 32-ish employees. Uh, we're in 50 different states. Uh, we still do custom winemaking. We've got our three brands. Um, I brought in some partners called um, Bacchus Capital um, mm -hmm. in 2011, uh, venture capital firm. And why the why the extra brands? Why did you decide to go with Wine by Joe and Jovino? Yeah, well, I started with Dobbs, which, which is our luxury label. Mm -hmm. uh, so price 26 to now $100 a bottle. And um, first couple of vintages, well, 2002 vintage was the first with Dobbs, at, make, actually made at Tory Moore. And then um, as I was consulting there and then started my own facility in 03, I was watching the market and there was a lot of bulk wine out on the market. And um, A to Z was just getting started basically as a... Um, uh, negociant, if you will, so meaning you know buying mm -hmm. grapes from others and or wine, putting it together, and they started their label. And I saw a, a market out there. You know, most people do not buy wine that's over twenty dollars a bottle. That's a much smaller segment of the market. That's where Oregon really um, started out was more in the luxury and the higher mm -hmm. end wines, which I think was really great. But I saw an opportunity there. I kind of morphed into the whole idea of wine by Joe, something a little bit tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> um, serious wine without attitude. Uh, had the little logo of the guy that's still on there. More de-emphasized now after the third rendition of the label, but holding some bottles kind of, you know, mm -hmm. and it said really good over the top of it. And that thing just completely took off. Um, so that's when life got a little more complicated as I needed more employees, it took a lot more cash, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, we ended up adding the sparkling later on, uh, Chardonnay, and uh, companies started growing, growing, growing. So um, within seven vintages, we were the second largest producer of Oregon wine. The custom winemaking was a necessity because unlike a lot of others that get into the wine business, I was young. I was in, you know, at that time in my 40s mm -hmm. and um, had started out uh, as a youngster in the business and um, didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I didn't have a pot of gold at the end of the golden <laughs> rainbow. I didn't have a software company or a pharmaceutical company. Um, this wasn't a second career, you know, I, um, as many others sure. have done. And so um, I kind of call myself like the second generation, if you will, of the modern winemaking era mm -hmm. in Oregon. Modern meaning starting in the, in the 70s, Richard Summers in the 60s. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, Peter Britt before the turn of the century in Southern Oregon and others uh, actually up in the Willamette Valley and Columbia Gorge has mm -hmm. vines over 100 years old, started much earlier. Um, the industry hasn't talked about that too much, at least in my opinion. Yeah. So 
Um, so kind of the second coming of the general of the uh, the modern generation and I've got the third and maybe the fourth coming here soon. Yeah, so exactly. So after 40 years, Oregon was an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Since the 70s. Exactly. Yeah. So um, anyway, I'm rambling on here. But, Do you have um, a? Actually, let me ask you first before. Uh, what about Jovino as your as your third mm -hmm. label? Yeah. So um, Dobbs, then uh, Wine by Joe. Shortly behind that, Wine by Joe was a little too tongue in cheek for some people. <laughs> so the first label was Wine. By Joe, right? <laughs> so a little bit kind of acme looking. And I did that on purpose. It really got people's attention. So the first order that we got, or one of the first orders, was for a 200 case stack at Whole Foods in downtown Portland. <laughs> Boom. And then we rolled that out at the Newport Seafood and Wine Festival and the Oregon um, Bite on the waterfront. Had great success with that. The wines are out there. But some people felt that there was some pushback to the label. It was a little too acme looking. It was a little <laughs> bit not white tablecloth enough. They loved the value. <laughs> they loved the quality. Um, but it's like, yeah, I just can't go there with the label. I said, all right, well, we'll start another label. Sure. There. So we'll do Jovino. Because somebody else is going to get that by the glass placement right in the restaurant. And if I'm not going to get it, someone else will. And I figure, well, I'll start another label that's on premise. Uh, meaning, you know, restaurant only, at least in Oregon and then other states where it's legal to sell it that way. So sure. that's how Jovino started. So the, uh, the first vintage of that was 2005 Pinot Noir. Uh, great vintage, boom, right out of the chutes, it grew quickly. So three labels, a um, lot of custom winemaking clients, a couple thousand tons at the time. Wow. Um, we're up over 3,200-ish um, last couple vintages. Variation, but anyway. Yeah, so. <laughs> so you've touched, touched on this a little bit, but take me through kind of your winemaking philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, I love your questions. They're great questions. Thank you. So um, winemaking philosophy, complexity through diversity. So what does that mean? So um, we do single vineyard designates. When I first started out with the Dobbs label, I wasn't doing single vineyards. Um, I did what we call the family uh, cuvées, Patricia's, Amelia's, and, and Griffin's, named after my family members, my mm -hmm. wife, Patricia's son, Griffin, and Amelia, and a what we call general, our grand assemblage, Pinot Noir, which was the entry level equivalent to most people's Willamette Valleys. So multiple vineyard sources, mm -hmm. um, the grapes are, you know, make picking decisions, uh, ferment separately, keep them, the lot separate to uh, age and then blend um, down the road. So looking for complexity through diversity by keeping everything separate, different sub-AVAs, excuse me, um, clones, age of vines, uh, parts of the Willamette Valley, etc. And so that I think is that's where we're getting our complexity. So right now we're doing eight to ten different Pinot Noir bottlings a year. So they, they better sure as heck taste <laughs> different, right? Sure, so. Sure. Um, that's how we achieve that. Um, I believe in, uh, I don't believe the bigger is better. Um, in the press, uh, a lot of times the bigger, the more extracted the red wine, uh, the more alcohol to a point, the more oak, the bigger the scores. I'm kind of pontificating here a little bit, but mm -hmm. trying to, yeah, you need to please the consumer, but at the same time, stay true to yourself. So, you know, my style has evolved a little bit um, over the years, but really, True varietal character, um, balance, I think is by far very, very important. If you're making something that's huge, it's not going to be in balance. You can still make a wine that's got a lot of heft and some mm -hmm. um, you know, fortitude to it, but you still have to have the alcohol and the balance and the yolk in there. So I believe that the fruit should speak first, specifically on you know, red wines that, are, that, are, uh, that have oak in them, uh, Pinot Noir or others, Syrah, et cetera. Um, and uh, delicacy, elegance, and you know, and for the white wines too, you know, something that uh, true varietal character. You stick your nose in the glass and mm -hmm. say, yeah, that's that's Riesling or that's that's Pinot Gris or or whatever. That's Oregon, fresh fruit, good sure. acidity, balance. So um, I think, and that I think also helps set us um, apart from the rest of the the United States mm -hmm. and the varietals that we're making. You know, that that forward fresh. Good acidity, um, balanced alcohol, not out of whack. Um, true to our uh, origins here. Sure. Our ABS. Sure. So. So. Um, and that's that's evolved over the years. You know, different yeast strains and methodologies. Mm -hmm. and so. 
curious when you when you got started on your own, you had you'd been in wine for a little while, but did you find there were certain challenges you were unprepared for when you started your own label or when you set on your own for the first time? Yeah, yeah, just you know the precipitous growth um, and you know hiring of people, knowing exactly where we're going. Mm -hmm. I think. Um, you know, everyone's got strengths and weaknesses. My down, I'm an entrepreneur as much as I am a winemaker, and I love marketing. So that that part was a lot of fun. The finance and the distribution part were not my expertise, mm -hmm. right? So I would say, really, where I've fallen down the most would be um, not so much the, the the financial end, but the you know in-house management of finances, but uh, distribution, national sales, and all that. We had a lot of these, you know, some misses. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, do we have our own sales team? Do we hire some brokers? Do we have East Coast, West Coast guys, et cetera? Um, some unfortunate circumstances. Um, probably also my point, uh, from my standpoint, being afraid to spend the money on a general manager maybe years ago that had a lot of sales experience that could have really kind of coached me and taken me there. So fear of the unknown and maybe avoidance of that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like I, you know, I, I never was computer literate until long, long after I should have been. Right? You know, <laughs> sure. I just kind of avoided it, and I got to Willamette Valley Vineyards, and it's like I better learn this. Right? So, <laughs> I mean, some of that I think. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, finance. You know, we had a bookkeeper, and then other you know good um, accountants and all that but you know you get to the company to the point where it's like you need a full-time CFO etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. and you know the business kept evolving and I guess um, you want to say you know at some point becomes bigger than you are right right you need I think as an entrepreneur and then a manager and how many things can you control well are you an expert at all those heck no you, you can't be nobody is and then getting people in and training them and giving them a, a, a leash and mm -hmm. saying, all right go do your thing um, those are the challenges in any company of course and my company's no different so um, <laughs> those are some of the, the earlier for sure challenges winemaking was um, essentially kind of a piece of cake <laughs> and there's a lot of challenges in that it's agriculture um, et cetera, but um, once you have a wine in the bottle, you got to get it sold, right? Right. And that's where uh, I think most people will fall down, but that is not their expertise, you right. know. Um, I had a meeting with somebody the other day who was a, a, a potential customer and a new partner and somebody that we work with and as a client, and his expertise is all in finance and distribution, right? Again, wow, I wish I had somebody like that <laughs> earlier on that could have helped us get to where we want to go sooner than later. So, um, yeah. Know. Yeah, it's interesting. I was gonna, that was what I was going to ask you next was about marketing because, you, you know, usually when we talk to people, that's, that's the bane of their existence, right? They love making the wine. They love everything else about it. Mm -hmm. But actually selling it is the, is the challenge. So yeah, the fact so that you enjoy the, doing that. Well, there's marketing and sales. So I enjoy the, the marketing and so specifically, like, you know, the design of the label, the packaging, the style, the, 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 the vision, the story, all that. Mm -hmm. That's what I call marketing. Mm -hmm. I mean, sales is hardcore in the trenches with the distributors, negotiating deals with them, holding them to it, looking at the numbers, being on the street, doing the dinners. Um, not necessarily asking for the sale, um, but trying to get that mm -hmm. sale. I mean, for myself as a you know, winemaker, the owner, et cetera, it's not often I'll go out in the market when I'm working with a, a you know a, a rep of ours or distributor and saying asking for the sale. They generally do that, but I'm doing the, the storytelling, the sure. marketing aspect of sure. that. But the nuts and bolts sales, that's tough. It's uh, you know it's getting tougher these days too. Yeah. You know, there are more and more wineries, more brands out there, more wine. Um, the United States is the largest um, consumer of wine right now, but not per capita. Um, and the distribution network is getting, the neck of that funnel is getting mm -hmm. smaller and smaller and smaller. So either you need to be with somebody who's big and powerful um, as a partner or distribution, you know, to get into the distribution, to have some moxie with them, or you're in trouble. Or there's other means, of course, you know, direct to consumer, um, that in Oregon is growing, growing, growing. There's a big focus on that, right? So some of the wineries that first started out um, didn't pay attention to that. No, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Perhaps maybe that was beneath um, what some people thought they needed to do. You know, our, you know, we sell it elsewhere, but then a lot of people have jumped into it and um, 
they're seeing a big growth in that, but it's that even that slowed down too. Sure. You know, there's more and more wineries that have direct consumer programs and hiring good people. Um, there's actually a shortage, I think, um, if you talk to most wineries and um, you know people who are really highly experienced at direct consumer tasting room sales, mm -hmm. etc. Um, so that's uh, you know our industry is continuing to grow. Um, we're growing as a company and trying to figure it out. So. We're beyond the uh, infancy stage, we're in the juvenile plus <laughs> stage, but we're not a mature industry no. by any means. Sure. Are, um, you, are we, uh, is it a big industry? Would you say it's a big industry at this point? We are the, what, third largest producer of wine, I think, mm -hmm. in the United States, maybe second in number of wineries. Mm -hmm. um, you've interviewed a lot of people, so you probably know this better than I. Um, California being the number one uh, producer of wine and the most wineries, but I think Oregon's number two. New York is kind of right in there mm -hmm. too. Um, Washington State, of course, is bigger. Um, is it a big industry? Yeah, we're like three billion dollar industry, I think. Last I've read and heard, um, it's nothing to sneeze at. Mm -mm. We're the number one agricultural product um, in Oregon right now. Marijuana is now legal, so maybe that'll <laughs> surpass it. I don't know. <laughs> um, it is what it is. Um, use that, overuse that term, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, are we a big industry? We're a fledgling industry. I don't, I don't think we'll be nearly as big as Oregon or uh, California is um, or Washington is just because we don't have the, the vast amount of acreage that Washington State has that you can plant rolling contiguous acres, you know, in central and eastern Washington. Um, one could look at Eastern Oregon. There's some vineyards planted there, but it's a different microclimate, mm -hmm. different environment. It's not as conducive, in my opinion. Um, Willamette well, Valley is pretty small, really. I mean, if you look at Central Valley, California, Napa, and Sonoma, sure. I mean, it's a huge state. So um, we like that, I think. You know, as uh, provincial uh, Oregonians, that uh, we don't want necessarily Willamette Valley to be the next Napa. We would like some of that, but mm -hmm. um, I don't think we'll ever be what I call Disneyland for adults. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, we as an industry get um, much more than our fair share of press internationally based upon you know the percentage of the marketplace that we are. I think Oregon is only 3% of the, the total line. That's something like that, yeah. Something like that, yeah, small amount. So, um, but new regions, um, nationally, internationally, that are, uh, you know, new, 40 years old mm -hmm. um, in the modern era, don't come around very often. And with the successes that we've had here in Oregon and uh, the dedication of the, you know, the first, the pioneers, so to speak, that came to Oregon, um, you know, the modern era, and then myself, the second generation, or helping the third and the fourth, et cetera. Um, yeah, it'll continue to grow, for sure. Um, we're, we're a different model. I mean, we don't have as much value-priced wines as Washington and mm -hmm. California. Um, that is growing, for sure. You know, A to Z is doing a great job with that. Um, King Estate with um, mm -hmm. their Acrobat label. Uh, Ryan Harms with his label, actually doing wine in cans right now. Mm -hmm. Wine by Joe's been growing precipitously and others. So that, that segment of the marketplace is getting more and more crowded, uh, value priced. And I think, uh, well, that's the majority of where the fruit's coming from these right. days too. Right. You know, let's be honest. Um, so there's place for both. Fortunately, I think um, when David Lett came, David Lett and David Adelsheim in particular and others, Dave Jordan, at, at the time they helped draft the Oregon, uh, the laws through, with uh, Oregon Liquor Control Commission the, the truth and bottling laws, mm -hmm. and um, we're you know 90% varietal for the Burgundian and uh, the Germanic varietals, which really, and the reason for that was um, for focus on quality. They didn't want to see people coming to Oregon, and the federal standard, of course, is 75, mm -hmm. 25, right? So 75% Pinot Noir, 25% anything else, you mm -hmm. can call it Pinot Noir. They didn't want to see others coming to Oregon or native Oregonians starting. Uh, labels and brands and making something called Pinot Noir that maybe wasn't so great. They mm -hmm. really wanted to make sure that we were focused on really great quality and that's why the laws were drafted the way they were. So that was really fortuitous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, uh, constantly amazed by the foresight of some of the folks who started 
between for sure. land use and, and yeah. model and, and those land kind of use is a whole other big one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you don't do something like that, I think, as a, a guy in his young 20s out of college because you don't know what you don't know. Um, you know, a lot of yeah. brilliant people out there. Maybe they would have had the foresight, but you know, those that had been had some experience and this was a second career for them, um, as were the early pioneers. Um, they knew what had happened, they knew the wine business, they had seen what had happened elsewhere, and they wanted to make sure that we didn't make any mistakes early on. Sure. I think it was, as I said, fortuitous. It's yeah. been great for our industry. Yeah. So, so take, take me through some of, the, some of the, the most notable changes you've seen in Oregon's wine industry since you started to today. I get asked this a lot. Um, Sometimes, you know, you got to kind of step back and, and take a look at it. Um, notable changes, well, obviously, you know, the precipitous growth. I mean, in the uh, 86, 87, uh, there was a group of tech, uh, winemakers um, that included, you know, David Lett and Adelsheim and um, Erath, et cetera, and others that um, had these tastings, and I was part of those. Um, we were all learning from each other. Um, all maybe had more time at that point because mm -hmm. the wineries are smaller. I was just a hired gun. Um, now that I own my own winery, I hardly get a chance to do that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. But you really have this core industry, and we were learning from each other. We brought in you know barrel reps um, to present the wines and yeast um, uh, vendors, etc. You know Scott Labs and people like that. Lafleur learn about products out there. Um, initially. Uh, this was also really smart, too. When we were doing outreach to the United States, marketing trips, um, like Oregon takes New York, whatever, mm -hmm. um, there were some dinners and tastings mm -hmm. there. The wines were screened by our industry before we let, be, they basically you had to pass a screening mm -hmm. to be able to participate. And I sat in on some of those panels. Um, so, you know, getting to your point about how the, the industry has changed, there were a lot of flawed wines that were being made, you know, wines that had stuck fermentations, volatile acidity, sulfides, things like that. And uh, so those wines were screened out. You just don't see those kinds of wines being made anymore, um, even from the beginners. Mm -hmm. that, you know, they've kind of gone to school and maybe hired a, a good winemaker or a consultant or asked um, how to go about things. So um, quality of the wines has definitely improved. Um, in the vineyards, um, Vast improvement in the vineyards as well. Learn how to farm the fruit better. Um, you know, we, we have to do what I call preventative farming here in Oregon because of the cool growing region and it's a it's amount of time that uh, is prophylactic farming, so to speak. Um, it's amount of time. Uh, it's always a matter of time that the door is going to slam shut. It's going to get rainy. It's going to get cold. It's going to get wet or warm and warm and damp. Excuse me. So you've got mold and mildew to worry about in the sure. vineyards. Um, focus on quality. All these things open up the canopy, um, sunlight into the vines, etc. So we've really grown as um, viticulturists, which has helped improve the quality of the wine. So there's in the vineyard where it all starts, of course, and then the cellar and the winemaking expertise, quality of the equipment, um, etc., has really improved. Um, and of course, then the vast number of wineries, mm -hmm. right? The press, the focus on Oregon. Um, another big, big uh, event I think was uh, let's see, '88. You know, affirmations to the organ industry. Uh, Domaine Druin came mm. from Burgundy, right? Um, and um, I think there were some economic funds maybe to help make it uh, more appealing to set mm -hmm. up. I know mm -hmm. David Adelsheim was involved with uh, Robert Druin and getting him set up. So that was a great kind of blessing, if you will, of the organ industry. They're like, wow. The man Druin came to Oregon, and he had tasted the wines, and we've all, you know, that story's been told a hundred times sure. or more, um, to get some more attention to Oregon. Um, there were other smaller events, but uh, tipping points, but I think the, the, one of the biggest and most recent then was uh, Chateau Saint-Michel, owned by, I think, um, U.S. Tobacco at the time, or Altria or somebody, um, bought. Erath. So Dick Erath, one of the pioneers, sold to Semichel, right? And they are a mature company. They have a, a national distribution network that's mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. And boom, plug and play. Erath grew. That was a lot of attention. Uh, Premier Pacific then, um, um, 
out of California, the California our CalPERS, you know, um, public employees mm -hmm. retirement system, I believe. Um, invest a lot of money in plantings in Oregon, Premier Pacific Vineyards, and um, we spent a lot of money, <laughs> planted some great vineyards, uh, so that was kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of went belly up. Uh, there were some transitions there. Then Kendall Jackson came to town and bought some of the CalPERS properties. All of a sudden, then ERAF bought some of the CalPERS properties. And then Adam Campbell and family, his mm -hmm. parents, Pat and Joe Campbell, whom I worked with, stepped up and bought another property. And all of a sudden, the land grab was on, right? Mm -hmm. um, then you've had um, some more of the French coming recently. Mm -hmm. uh, Jean-Nicolas, um, last name. <laughs> <laughs> I just met him last week um, from Burgundy and, um, oh gosh, Jacques Lardier from um, one of the largest uh, producers in Burgundy. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the name right now, came to Oregon. And so those are, you know, Kevin Chambers sold his vineyard mm -hmm. um, to Jadot, Louis Jadot, right. whom Lardier works with. And, you know, so you've got these international luminaries, more coming to Oregon, and then just California coming to Oregon. And, you know, Elohan, um Joe Wagner, that was uh, uh, sold his uh, Naomi brand for 300 and some million dollars is now invested in Oregon and making wine and more and more Californians looking because it's, you know, water issues down there, mm -hmm. regulatory issues, mm -hmm. global warming, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Oregon's looking more and more appealing. So for the French, Oregon is like the, the great <clears throat> opportunity because in France, they don't have any more land that's plantable. It's highly regulated. Uh, right. What you can plant, when you can pick, um, how much you can produce, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. They aren't going to change anything there, right? Yeah. So for, for them, Oregon and you know, the United States is kind of the wild frontier. There's an opportunity. So then you have French um, and Germans um, pairing up with Oregonians for new brands. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's pretty exciting. You know? So you're starting to see second generations, third generation getting into the business or fairly soon. You know, my kids are in their early 20s, um, so they're interested in the business. Um, the Ponzi's children I know are interested in the business, and uh, Girardet, um, uh, Jason Lett, you know, yeah. second generation, and third right around the, yeah. the corner. So it's pretty exciting times. Yeah. So what happens next? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> what happens next? Um, There, here's another big change, yeah, is just the professionalism. I've talked about quality of viticulture, quality of winemaking, mm -hmm. but the professionalism and the, the evolution from uh, infancy to juvenile to maybe more um, uh, mature uh, wine industry, and that includes distribution expertise, direct-to-consumer expertise, um, people with a lot of experience coming to Oregon or growing up within Oregon mm -hmm. that are gaining more experience to really elevate the whole thing. So uh, more marketing dollars. We've got the new Willamette Valley Barrel Auction, which is um, <clears throat> throwing out a lot of money. You know, it's really interesting that we, over the years as wineries, give a lot of time and, and money and, in the form of wine, et cetera, and uh, investment of our energies to help promote other industries um, or charities, mm -hmm. which is a noble thing to do. Um, but this is the first time we've essentially had our own charity with the Willamette Valley Barrel Auction. That's something that's, uh, you know, our, the luminaries in the early Oregon industry have been, um, you know, International Pinot Noir Celebration, Oregon Pinot Noir Celebration, um, to bring attention to Oregon, professionally done, a lot of congeniality here in the industry. Um, but now it's getting to be a little bit more, we're very, still very congenial, but it's getting more and more competitive, for sure. So, you know, where are we going? Higher quality wines, um, more professional, uh, you know, vineyard experience, mm -hmm. um, bigger facilities, more finances behind them, outside mm -hmm. investment, altogether taking it to that that next level. Um, yeah, it's uh, we aren't kids anymore. <laughs> True, <laughs> right? True. I mean, it's just it's up or out. Mm -hmm. It's more competitive for sure. So, you know, for the bigger wineries, that's, that takes a lot of capital and 
a lot of horsepower. Uh, the smaller wineries, more direct to consumer um, focus. Mm -hmm. You know, 2,500 cases. Hey, they don't want to get any bigger than that. That's that market. Their market niche, mm -hmm. um, somewhere in between. So yeah. So do you see the number of wineries continuing to rise, or do you see it cap peaking at some point soon? Well, I've been told for years that there should be, there you're going to see a consolidation of Oregon wineries, and I haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there have been some that have come and gone, right? Mm -hmm. But every year that number goes up. So, you know, every year I just add another 25 or 50 to the, you know, there's 725 wineries. Right. Uh, most of them are within an hour's drive of Dundee, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's where the majority is in the northern, in the Willamette Valley, anyway, mm -hmm. um, for the states. So, no, I don't see the number of wineries going down. You know, it's a, it's a pretty uh, captivating, uh, or uh, let's say, um, very appealing lifestyle. Um, as, for, as for an outsider, it's it's a very difficult um, lifestyle mm -hmm. as somebody who makes wine and you have to sell it and grow it and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think the number of wineries in California is going down, is it? I, I'm not sure. You know, there's always somebody that's looking to make the, the next best, greatest sure. bottle of wine. Um, the challenges just keep going up, really, to get it sold, mm -hmm. right? I already talked about the distributor consolidations, more, you know, smaller distributorships and starting up. Um, wineries collaborating together um, to maybe hire somebody that represents both of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, what advice would you give someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry? Um, <clears throat> make sure you're well capitalized. Know in advance where you want to go. Know who you are and what you want to be make as few po mistakes as possible. That sounds like a no-brainer, right? But a lot of people are afraid to ask. You know, hire somebody to get that expertise. I would say go work for somebody. You know, get some experience working for another winery or vineyard and, and vineyard. Um, uh, realize that there's more to it than making a great bottle of wine. The world's going to knock down your door. It doesn't <laughs> happen. There's a few that get blessed out of the shoot early on because the press always wants somebody new mm -hmm. and exciting to write about, right? Because you know, so-and-so has been around 30 years or whatever. Great. Um, but the press is always looking for the next best and new story. So very few people get blessed with that 95 points out of the door and right. you know, that everyone knocks their door down. So know where you want to go uh, so there's where you're going to get your fruit you know so there's a production part there's the sales and marketing there's a finance um, and it's going to take you longer to get there than you think know where you want to go first just uh, get as much practical experience as possible so good advice that's most. millions of dollars worth of advice <laughs> right there that's right. And, and and many mistakes that have been made and, and rectified over the time over the exactly years. yeah yeah don't make the same mistake twice everyone will make them right right um you know and, and also it's uh, we're subject to the economy as is everything else right um we're farmers so you have great prices go up great prices do go down for the most part they go up right mm -hmm. Um, you have vintages that uh, the press may not be so enamored with and we're beholden to the press, right? Um, large tonnage vintages, uh, lesser tonnage vintages. So they're wild swings, early harvests, mm -hmm. warm harvests, average harvests, late cold wet harvests, right? It's pretty scary, right? you know? So you're a farmer. I mean, if I look at my company, I have a 214-acre vineyard, um, so we're farmers. We make wine for our labels and for others, so that's an out. That's a different model. But regardless if you're making wine for others or not, on our custom winemaking services, you're still a winemaker. You're a um, marketer. You're a sales. You're running a sales uh, sure. um, team, maybe. Um, or if you're out doing an outside hiring of a team, you still have the retail room. So you're running a number of different businesses all within one, and it's uh, it's pretty complex. Plus, you're a host. You have to host. You have to. Have you're a host. We spend many days, um, weekends, evenings, um, entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, sure, it's fun, right? I mean, <laughs> but uh, you know, when you've been in this business for a while, so we're doing a winemaker's dinner and. 
it's a Saturday night and it's cold and wet outside. And I was like, God, I'd like to sit by the fireplace and <laughs> drink some wine at home and chat with my wife or have some friends over and you're out entertaining. And right. that's just part of what we need, what we do, yeah. right? Especially more so in the wine business. And every business, you know, if you're making computer chips, you're still entertaining, but the, the nature <laughs> of that is much different. Food and wine, right? right. Um, so, you yeah. <laughs> know. So what's next for you? You mentioned something about bottling. Yeah, um, you know, on the way here today, I was, I was listening, to, it was a commercial on income streams and that, you know, everybody's form of income eventually will go away. And they were citing, you know, the um, Fortune 500 companies since, I don't know what year it was, 1960s or 70s, uh, you know, probably 80% of them, 85% of them are no longer or as they were in that original form and you, where you're getting your revenues from. So anyway, when they're talked about, you know, for a family, for a business, generating other income streams. And um, as the entrepreneur, um, you know, the bane of my existence, I think, is that I'm an entrepreneur as much as I am a winemaker and really into marketing. I think it drives my staff crazy sometimes, but hey, you know. Um, <laughs> There's, I love looking at opportunities out there, and it's not only in the wine business, other businesses that, are, you know, things that, are, that I think, hey, there's an opportunity there. It's just the way I was wired. And uh, when I came back from Germany in 1986, um, summer of 86, there were no custom or, uh, mobile bottling companies in Oregon. And Signature Mobile Stall Bottlers started up in uh, 88. Mm -hmm. They've got 12 or 13 trucks now. There's several other uh, folks that are um, in Oregon that have started mobile bottling companies. And in 86, I had that idea, but it was well you know, over my capabilities and wherewithal to do something like that. Here's a good opportunity. And I don't remember how I came to that. I think I'd, you know, I'd heard that there are others in California or whatever. But um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I took a really hard look at, you know, we're bottling a couple hundred thousand cases of wine at our facilities for our clients and also for our wines. And I looked at what we're paying for that and I said, all right, you know, um, I'm in my early mid 50s at the time and I'm like, here's an opportunity and I'm going to go for it. So I thought I started out with uh, some smaller ideas and I kind of morphed into, all right, well, we're going to do something that uh, nobody else has done in Oregon, right? Um, there's mobile bottling lines, but do something on a level that we can offer services and speed and delivery of quality um, with regard to the dissolved oxygen content in the bottle okay. at a thousand times less than what is being done currently. So net-net, um, we put a business, we, my wife and I, um, called Dundee Mobile Bottlers together. Uh, we'll launch it in June. We'll bottle our company's wines, and then we have a highly skilled technician that is going to go out and bottle other people's wines. So, um, uh, bottling for winemakers by winemakers. So it's a complete different niche, if you will, because um, the folks that are bottling with the other companies are all doing a great job. They're good people, but none of them are winemakers, right? right? And so that's why um, I figure, well, if I'm going to bottle my best my wines, don't I want to give those wines the best opportunity possible? to really become all they can be, right? Sounds like a commercial on Saturday morning. <laughs> be all you can be. Right. But really, I mean, it's, you know, the, the longevity and the freshness of wine is determined, uh, you know, we do the best that we can, but you get to the bottling process and there are certain limitations. So I wanted to forget those limitations, go big or go home and put something together that nobody else could do. And if I'm making also make it, you know, for for going out and competing with, but also if I'm making my own wines, I want to give those wines sure. the best treatment that I can possibly do. Sure. So that's that's what we're doing. Um, we can do sparkling wine and still wine. We can do beer. We can do ciders. Um, it's bevering, uh, bottling of beverages, so to speak. But mm -hmm. we're focused first and foremost on the wine industry. Sure. So, and I'm looking at this as you know, we're going to give some of the money that um, is raised from this to two different charities. Um, Salud. Mm -hmm. um, that it, uh, helps the industry and those that help us. Mm -hmm. And Uncorked, which is a local charity's uh, family building blocks in oh. Salem, Oregon, Excellent. where we live. So support our own backyard with that. Um, and also help elevate the quality of what's coming out of Oregon because with this technology, it will happen. 
um, I think, and uh, um, just what I want to do. It's exciting. What we're up to, yeah. So my kids are thinking about getting into the business, and my son will be working on the mobile bond online this summer. My daughter's going to spend her third summer in the tasting room and then do harvest and then uh, possibly work for us as a sales ambassador at large. And uh, so it's, it's, that's a lot of fun. You know. For me, that's next, you know? Sure, <laughs> sure, nice. Yeah. All right, one more question for mm-hmm. you. And that is that we understand that you have a policy that if an employee works for you a certain number of years, they can make their own vintage under your... Like, yes. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, I believe in, um, taking good care of people that take care of me. Um, I don't believe in filling somebody's boots and then hoping that they can live into them, you know, or live <laughs> up to it. They have to, you know, we give them a leash and either they make it longer or it, it doesn't, you know, the leash gets tighter. Um, but uh, looking for, I had a, I was looking for a way to report, re, um, reward long-term employees. And so after they were with the company a certain number of years, five years, then they were able to put together their own barrel of wine and do the blends and um, all the net revenues um, <laughs> from, you know, after expenses for the company's expenses for bottling and corks and all that stuff, then um, go to the employee. So that was, um, you know, is kind of a thing of, I never realized the company was going to get as big as it got. <laughs> And then after a while, it became a bit of a two-headed monster because it was like, okay, well, that was the intent initially was for production employees because those are the first people that I hired. But after a while, we're looking at, well, you know, we have to do four barrels of wine to accommodate our staff this year. And mm-hmm. some of these people were then not in production. And so I had to kind of rejigger that one. <laughs> We're finding different ways to take care of long-term employees. That's really cool. So, um, yeah, Dobbs Family Estate, I mean, it truly is a family environment there. Or it's a business first and foremost, but we try to make it a family environment and had a number of really long-term employees, which is really gratifying and makes life easier. I mean, we are we are like a family there. Sure, so, sure. You know. Well, that's all the questions I have for okay. you. Is there anything else that I should have asked you or anything else you want to mention? No, I love your questions. Oh. Yeah, those are great, those, really. Those, those were Shelby's, so. Yeah, okay. good job, Shelby. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, thank you very much for your time. My really pleasure. Pre- thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.